Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. By back, we mean back to a special episode. Um, back from our normally regularly scheduled program, we are coming to you live again from our respective shelter-in-place, self-isolation, quarantine ad hoc studios. Uh, David is in the always movable William Adams studio, which is now located in his dining room. I am in the Dan Haran Theological Library, which is my bedroom. And uh, we are delighted uh, to add these extra bonus segments because we realize other folks are in their respective uh, recording studios, aka apartments, living rooms, uh, places of employment, uh, and so forth, um, and may be looking for some more content material, non-COVID-19 related uh, things. Um, and since we have some additional flexibility in our time, since David and I are both uh, theologians and professors who at this point are working from home, um, we decided that we would try adding uh, short additional kind of bonus segments, not just for our Patreon supporters. There are those still rolling in. Uh, so if you're a Patreon supporter, check that out. Um, but this is going to be a little bit looser than our normal program, uh, less formal. And the theme that we had, uh, the idea that we had for for this kind of bonus segment would be thematic, and it would be focused on theology. And uh, perhaps each week we would come up with some topic that one or both of us is really interested in, uh, in discussing in greater detail. And this week's uh, topic goes to one Dr. David Dalt, um, who proposed this idea for our conversation. And we're going to try to keep this probably within, you know, 25 to 30 minutes max. So uh, if you're used to our normal hour or so format, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a break. But David, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we had for for the for the main show, we had done a segment on the the sacrament of penance, the, also known as reconciliation, also known as confession, and I realized that there was a whole kind of other tangent that we could have gotten into that we didn't get into, and so I wanted to take this time to dive into that, and that is the seal of confession and what that means. Uh, what You're talking a, about the uh, the marine mammal that lives <laughs> uh, on, on on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. Is that what you mean? The yes, seal yes, the, of confession, the, the, the very rare seal of confession, not to be not to be confused with the porpoise of absolution. Um, <laughs> but no, but the the seal of confession meaning that when when I as a layperson go into the confessional. Uh, what what sort of expectations can I have in terms of the priest talking about what I talk about with him, with other people, with other priests, or with the bishop, or with uh, with authorities of any kind? And so that that's where I want to start is when we talk about the seal of confession, what are we talking about exactly? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it, is, it's, it is one of those kind of theological or technical terms that get tossed around, um, and, and most people don't totally understand what it means. Um in, in brief, what we mean is that everything that is discussed, uh, the sins particularly, uh, the pastoral counseling around uh, the sacrament of penance, um, all of that, that, the fact that, that a penitent, that somebody actually went to the sacrament itself, um, all of that is entirely privileged, to use a secular term. The seal of confession means that absolutely nothing can be discussed or even inferred in a, in a concrete case about um, about the sacrament, about the celebration of it. So it's it's about uh, it's about absolute secrecy. It's about absolute confidence. And when I say absolute, um, I mean that this is something 
far beyond what what most people kind of in other fields and in other disciplines where confidentiality and and privilege is honored. So one thinks of of client. Uh, uh, what is it? Client, uh, attorney, attorney client privilege. privilege. Exactly. Yeah. Or you might think of, you know, the, the client privilege that comes with mental health professionals and uh, psychologists or psychiatrists, or one might think of the privilege that's afforded or protected, for instance, in academic institutions like that you and I are a part of with, with the FERPA laws, the, uh, the privacy laws around educational uh, information or HIPAA laws when it comes to medicine and the practice of medicine. But there are exceptions to those rules. Uh, the exceptions, particularly in the medical fields, tend to be uh, around uh, criminality, about harm that is either threatened or ongoing to oneself or to others, um, and particularly when it comes to the violation of the safety of minors and vulnerable people, children in particular. So um, our listeners may have heard of a term called mandated reporter, um, and there are certain, depending on the state and federal statutes, there are certain professions, certain uh, figures who, by virtue of their office, by virtue of their uh, kind of work are required by law um, to report a crime that's taking place, um, you know, particularly when it comes to uh, to abuse. So, for instance, a teacher who, you know, uh, is made aware of abuse at home or the abuse of a child needs to report that. Uh, a psychologist, for instance, you know, everything is privileged and confidential in those settings, with the exception, and the, and the counselors make this clear, and, and oftentimes in the paperwork when one uh, becomes a new client, a uh, new patient, you, you, you are reminded of this, that if you are harming yourself, if you're a threat to yourself or harming yourself or you're a threat to others, um, then that uh, medical professional has a, a legal obligation to report that. Now, I just want to make sure that I'm clear. So in making these examples, We've set aside for the moment my question about the seal of confession, and we're we're making examples from secular, from secular occupations that may have what seem to be a kind of parallel confidentiality. So right now we're just saying there's confidentiality that exists in terms of client relationships with attorneys that exists with when you go to counseling that exists under kind of academic provisions. But each one of those, if I'm hearing you correctly, has these provisions that say, no, but we do have designated reporting issues. If you are going to harm yourself, that's not under the, under the privilege of this confidentiality. If you tell me that you're going to harm someone else or you are harming someone else, particularly a minor, it's not under this confidentiality. So all of those are what what are occurring in these kind of secular fields. First of all, do I have that distinction clear? That's that's exactly right. And so I, I brought those up by way of contrast because a lot of people think, and actually some legislators and um, you know uh, jurists and others and, and advocates have, have wanted to make the claim that clergy, particularly Roman Catholic clergy, which is what we're talking about, um, should have to fall under the same sort of expectations of confidence that obviously under normal circumstances, um, you know, confidentiality and privilege and, and privacy and secrecy and so forth around what is shared in the confessional or shared in the sacrament um, is protected with some exceptions. Now, the problem with that is, according to the church, um, and this is a canonical rule, but it's also a theological one. The, the, the canon um, is Canon 983 that says the sacramental seal in the, in the celebration of penance is inviolable. Therefore, it is absolutely forbidden for a confessor to betray in any way a penitent in words or in any manner and for any reason. So that's pretty clear. There's absolutely no exception to the rule. 100%. So let, me make, 
let me make sure that I'm clear. So a priest is not a mandated reporter after the fashion of what we said before. No, that's not true. So this is okay. where it gets very technical. A okay. priest actually is a mandated reporter outside of the confessional. And so um, uh, clergy persons like teachers, uh, and again, it might vary by state and by country law, um, but as a, as a rule, um, they, they are mandated reporters. So if I, for instance, in the normal course of ministry or in my teaching or something, become aware of uh, abuse or harm or a crime um, in, in the manner not unlike a medical doctor or a school teacher or a principal or something like that, I'm obligated to report it. The problem here is, is, is very, very narrowly defined. It's, it's about the sacrament of penance only. So, you know, I, I'll, I'll give an example. These are in general, right? I'm not, I'm not even going to say where this took place or, or who it was or anything like that, because that could potentially violate um, the privileges that we're identifying. But I can speak generally, and, and clergy can, and they do speak generally about circumstances um, of celebrating and presiding over the, the sacrament of penance and around pastoral counseling. You have to do this. You have to be able to do this, for instance, when training seminarians to be ordained who are going to encounter this, who do not exercise. Uh, sacramental orders and cannot celebrate the sacrament until they're ordained. So how do you prepare for something that you can't authentically, you can't you truly practice until you're really there? Well, you do role play and you learn from professors and these kinds of things. But, um, you know, there was, there was a, a, a time where I was meeting with um, somebody at a ministry where I was serving and uh, the person was sharing some information with me and I had to make clear to the person, I reminded them, and this is the same thing that medical professionals and other mandated reporters do and, and say that, you know, this is not, we're not celebrating the sacrament of penance right now. This is not confession. We're, we're having a conversation. And if you tell me something, you know, here are the kinds of things that I need to report to authorities, you know, if I'm made aware of it. And, and just to make that very clear so the person understood in the conversation that in the normal course of pastoral counseling, the normal course of a conversation, um, you know, as an academic, you know, if I'm in office hours, for instance, or meeting with students, I think sometimes people flip it around and they assume, well, because priests you know, maintain the secrecy of the seal of confession, you know, everything that's said is an absolute confidence, that everything you say to a priest is an absolute confidence. And, and I, it's, I know it's complicated, but I really have to make that clear that that's, that's not true. This is a very narrowly defined case. This is almost like when people assume incorrectly that everything that the Pope says is infallible. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and that's not the case. And in, 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 a, in, a, in a similar fashion, everything that you say to a priest is not under the seal of confession. So let me make sure that I'm clear. So if a person, say for example, comes to a priest for spiritual direction, okay, they may feel like they are covered by this, this, this seal. And so it's, it's, is it incumbent on the priest to make clear that that seal is not in effect? Is that is that part of the ethics of the priesthood? Are you taught that, or, or how how is yes. this yeah. how is this communicated to you in education about what you, what your obligations are in that moment? Yeah, I mean, it's always you know again, it's about a power differential there, right? When you're dealing with ministry, as you're dealing with education, as you're dealing with medical practices, and so you know, spiritual direction is distinct from uh, the sacrament of penance or confession, though if you're you know, spiritual director is ordained, there may be occasions in which you do want to celebrate the sacrament of penance. It really is incumbent on the priest as the spiritual director and as the presider of the sacrament to make those distinctions very, very clear to the directee or to the penitent. Because um, no, to go back to your original question, no, spiritual direction is analogous to uh, 
psychotherapy. It's analogous to to counseling, um, in which there there is no seal in the same way. There is a professional ethical code of confidence. Um, you know, again, akin to a psychologist. A psychologist, you know, has to maintain that confidence. Um, a spiritual director does as well. But if you disclose something, you know, as a threat to yourself or to others, as as kind of like the typical example, um, no, that is that is not that is no longer considered privileged information. That that must lead to, I would imagine, in certain extreme cases, a really difficult place for the priest. And let me give you a hypothetical. And this may be a crazy hypothetical, or maybe you may tell me that this is actually something that you are trained to deal with. Let's say, because you said a moment ago that if if you in your professional capacity had a suspicion, like let's say that you were a priest overseeing a, a school at a parish, and you had you had an inkling that there was some kind of abuse happening of a minor, and then the person who you suspected came into the confessional and actually confessed that, that would then, I would imagine, put a strange situation because you had had suspicions, but then the confessional was there. Am I completely coming from left field, or is no, this the kind of no, ethical yeah. distinction that a priest has to deal with? It is. Um thankfully that's not a common one um, <laughs> i'm glad you know but um so let me just say a little bit more about the nature of what's protected in the seal of confession because this might help instruct we can return to your question so if you want to hold on to that for a minute let me just give some more background um it's not just that a priest can't say you know david dalt went to confession to me last saturday and said these things that is such a blatant break of the seal um, but I'm going to use you as an example, if you don't mind. Go uh, for it. <laughs> just for the record, <laughs> David did not go to confession last Saturday. But see, here's the here's the funny thing. I'm laughing about it because it's it's so encompassing that I could not even acknowledge whether or not you did go to confession at all. So yes, that you can it, neither confirm nor deny. That's yeah, yeah. To use the kind of trope from TV and everything, that's exactly right. That um, because it would indicate an acknowledgement of the sacrament in a way that violates the seal of, of the sacrament itself. And so um, so that's one thing that's important to, to notice is that, you know, people talk about, you know, breaking the seal is, say, is acknowledging or, or relaying what somebody told you in the sacrament itself, in the confession part of the celebration of penance. But I can't, as, as a confessor, as a priest, I can't even acknowledge whether or not somebody has gone to confession. And there are, there are court cases about this that you can see, you know, where, where priests have been subpoenaed and, um, you know, they've been deposed and in the deposition will, will, will refuse to acknowledge whether or not somebody was there. Sometimes it's not even about, you know, here's, let me throw a hypothetical back at you, like by way of illustration, you know, maybe it's not about a, a, a transgressor of a crime, you know, or, or a perpetrator of a crime who's confessing to the crime. Maybe it's somebody who's claiming confession as an alibi <laughs> or something, you know, or they're trying to establish a time frame for an event or something like this. Um, there are, there is the possibility that the the penitent can acknowledge this. Like you, let's say back to this example where you last Saturday at four o'clock went to confession, you can go around and say until you're blue in the face and you can go around and say what you said in the confessional until you're blue in the face. I still can't acknowledge that. I still can't say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, oh, David said that? Yeah, it's true, it's happened. I, I we can't say nothing about it at all. This is fascinating to me. And so 
even if a person says verbatim what they said in the confessional as a layperson, the priest is still or as another under priest. The... You know, we go to confession too. You know, Fair anybody. So, so the, the 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 priest is always and and everywhere under the seal of confession. There is there is no lifting of it. Never. Okay. Absolutely okay. never. And and that's the thing that I think is very hard for contemporary people. Um, and it's not just a contemporary thing, but you know, as these issues are surfaced in our contemporary setting, whether it's state laws and these other things, you know, it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around because there are very there, there just aren't institutions that maintain that kind of absolutism. Now, within with within that seal. Let's say that a person comes and confesses something that is heinous. Does the priest have the ability to say to that person, I now need you to go and report yourself to the authorities? Or can the, is, is the priest restricted in what the priest can ask the penitent to do outside of the confessional? Great. This is such a good question. Oh my gosh, it's so good. So in addition to me not being able to say for me not being able to acknowledge whether the, the the penitent went to confession at all or what was disclosed in the celebration of the sacrament, what was discussed, I also, you cannot, as the presider, as the priest, you cannot make or compel a penitent to divulge or do anything to draw attention to the sins themselves by as as something tied to their penance or absolution. So what I mean by that is, and, and I'll circle back because that's not exactly what you asked, but I want to clear this up right from the get-go. As a priest, like let's say, you know, last Saturday at four o'clock, David Dalt came to me and confessed that he murdered 800 people. I can't say to him, David, for your penance, you need to go to the police station and turn yourself in. Because the penance is, is uh, it's tied, it, it's, well, oh, let me just stop there. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. The reason is because there's not you can't compel somebody to break the seal of confession, right? It's their privilege to not acknowledge that. Now, what I can do is strongly encourage them in the pastoral counseling that I can say, I, I think this is something for, you know, as an, a matter of justice, as a matter of right faith, as a matter of, you know, you know, you're here in confession because the Spirit's clearly moving in your heart and conscience. You're, it's weighing on you. Um, I can't compel you to do this, but I would strongly encourage you to turn yourself in. I can do that, and I can do that within the context of the sacrament, but I cannot compel somebody. It's it's so, um, it's it's, you know, it's funny because you ask, you know, these hypotheticals, these are exactly the kinds of questions you learn about in, in conversations, when, in, 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 in coursework when you're studying to be ordained. Um, and they're also the kind of questions that get, uh, you know, just like law students and lawyers know from law school, you get these case studies, right? And so these are the kinds of things you study when you study canon law. And so they're really, they're entertaining for me. So I'm so grateful they're, you're bringing them. Well, but, and but, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the role play aspect of this. And I love the fact to learn that priests do this because I have, you know, I, I do constitutional law context and so I'm familiar with with the uh, with the the practice of moot courts where you're you're actually going before a judge with real with real kind of casework and you're actually arguing cases but they have no legal bearing they're they're just role play and it's interesting to see you doing the same thing okay I've got a I've got a follow-up oh, but question. I'm not done with that yet hold on oh, a second. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. But I, I've got another question after okay that, but go yeah. ahead go ahead so the, the the second part is so I can't 
you know, it, it's forbidden to to compel somebody in the penance to disclose. You also can't do anything, compel anybody in, in the way that you would compel somebody is either the withholding of absolution or the tying it to a penance, right? So those are the two things that a presider cannot tie that signals the acknowledgement, the public acknowledgement of that sin itself. So here's here's another example. Somebody comes to me in confession and confesses to committing adultery on their spouse. Now, there are a lot of penances that are often given sometimes, you know, in addition, you know, the stereotype of 10 Hail Marys, this kind of thing, you know, we should be, and actually the right encourages creativity, you know, oftentimes restitutional kind of things, um, you know, whether it's it's time and prayer, that's maybe the Hail Marys, but maybe something less rote, praying for a particular intention, for instance, or maybe it's it's a good work that you uh, you offer as a penance. And it's, on, it's, again, it's an incumbent on the presider to check with the penitent to make sure this is something they can do. You cannot assign somebody a penance they're incapable of. So that's one of the questions we have to ask. Um, um, usually the, the you know the ten hail marys you don't have to ask they can go and pray ten hail marys in the chapel but you know if if you were to propose a penance like do something nice and it can't be vague either it also has to be very specific right i can't say do something nice for your spouse that's too vague but i could say you know w- what is something that uh, you do a loving sign for your spouse that you normally do Right. And if they say, oh, well, I, I every, you know, once a month or something, I make dinner or I, you know, I, we, I take that person out to this restaurant or something like this. And I might say, well, is that something that you could do this week? You know, is that something in a concrete time frame and sort of thing? Well, whatever that particular thing is. And if they can, then that might be something uh, that that can be assigned. However, if it's something that's going to trigger, you know, if it's something so out of the ordinary, it's, if it's something that's going to draw attention to something that's irregular, you know, not just changing one's attitude, saying something nice or doing something nice or providing something for somebody else or praying for somebody else or these sorts of things, but if it's going to draw attention to the sin itself, like, you know, you uh, confessed that you lied to somebody and the penances go and, you know, t- say something nice to that person. Well, if you don't normally interact with that person, it's going to be really weird and inexplicable. And, you know, you see what I mean? Do you follow that logic? So there are constraints on the pastoral framework around which penances can be assigned. And and it's all, again, you have to take into consideration the seal of confession, that, that it, there cannot be anything that is compelled that draws attention to the sin itself or to um, or to the celebration of the sacrament itself. The, so this this is making me, this is not the follow-up question that I was going to ask originally, but this is making me think of something. So I have a friend who's Eastern Orthodox, and he was talking to me one time years ago about about his relationship with his confessor. And one of the things that was so clear about that, and this had to do with the, the sort of close-knit nature of, of his particular Orthodox community, uh, just how well that confessor knew my friend's personality traits, how well the confessor knew, you know, the, the, the inclinations that my friend had. And I'm aware that that's not always the case in Catholic contexts. Parishes are oftentimes large, and even when they're not huge, 
Uh, I don't expect that a priest necessarily in the Roman Catholic tradition has the same familiarity with the with the person undergoing the 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 uh, uh, rite of penance. And so, I guess what I want to ask you is, what role does familiarity with uh, with with relationship? What role does relationship play in the the act of penance for the confessor? That's a great question. Um... It can be very helpful, as in the case of your friend. Um, and for some people, they uh, celebrate the the sacrament regularly and with the same confessor. Um, there's a tradition, like you have a spiritual director, somebody might refer to their confessor, and there's some person that they like to go to confession to. Um, I think in the Western Church, it's more common that people like the anonymity of the individual confession. Um, and so that's where you have the kind of Irish uh, imposition of the the kind of screen that's used and, uh, you know, you, the, the kind of imagery of these dark little wooden boxes and so forth. Um, and so, you know, that's perfectly fine, too. Um, but, uh, you know, there certainly is something advantageous, you know, there's kind of a hybrid of a spiritual director slash confessor in that familiarity setting. If I may, just more trivia, talk about some instances in which familiarity is incredibly bad, and actually, you cannot go to confession to certain familiar people. Um, So there's one example is uh, in religious communities and in seminaries, um, the religious superior uh, or the formation director, so like a novice master, for instance, in religious communities, cannot be as a rule, the confessor to those novices under his or, well, I guess in this case, totally his um, uh, supervision. So in a seminary, there's oftentimes a separate uh, team of spiritual directors who also serve as confessors for the seminarians. That's because there's a thing called a differentiation made in canon law called internal and external forum. And certain things, and this is not just for seminarians and and priests um, and religious, this is also for lay people too. Um, Internal forum are all those things that are held in in the seal of confession, they're absolutely confidential, um, and, and cannot uh, influence or impinge or shape in any way decisions about the individual or their access to the sacraments that would be sacraments, sacraments like the Eucharist, sacraments like holy orders. Um, and so, uh, in external form are all those forms of evaluation and analysis and, and study and so forth that is, is, uh, that is taken into consideration. So internal forum, for instance, there may be a situation in which a couple who are in an irregular marriage, um, let's say somebody did not get an annulment, uh, maybe attempted an annulment, but for various bureaucratic reasons or whatever, isn't able to accomplish it, there is a way, and this is acknowledged in uh, Amoris Laetitia, it's acknowledged in canon law, it's acknowledged in other in other ways, where through internal forum, in a way, not exactly sacramental confession, it may be tied to that in some ways, but, but not necessarily, but a priest could work in the internal forum, containing that kind of absolute confidence, that secrecy, with a couple that that um, allows for their ability to receive the sacrament of Eucharist and participate fully. Now, that is not very well known, and it's obviously not well known because it's in the internal forum. And this is one of the problems we have with the disturbed use of Canon 910 at times for people to deny public officials and others, anybody for that matter, you you know, access to communion, because you do not know not only what what their state is in terms of the celebration of confession, but you don't know what's been worked out in the internal forum. By de- by definition, you cannot know. And if you're the priest who's part of that, you cannot act on something you know through the internal forum. So, um, so that's one example of uh, 
people who who cannot be confessors in a certain context. Another example, and this is spelled out explicitly in canon law, if you're an accomplice to the sin itself, especially, most particularly, if it's a it's a violation of a sexual sin, right? So it's oftentimes referred to as the, the sin of adultery in the in the Decalogue and the Ten Commandments. You cannot absolve the the other accomplice in that context from that sin. Um, now there's an exception to both of those. And that exception is uh, people who are near death. If somebody's on their deathbed and you are a priest, you can validly uh, and licitly uh, absolve from those sins. What's interesting too is that even if you are if you're ordained and you leave active ministry, right? Um, you know, for whatever reason, or your faculties are revoked, or you are um, prohibited from celebrating public ministry because of, let's say, credible abuse allegations or something like this. Every, you know, we've talked about this, I think, on the podcast and in terms of other sacraments, all those celebrations of the sacraments are still valid because they're still validly a priest. You can't be unordained, but they're not licitly celebrated. What's interesting about the death exemption is that if somebody is near death, any validly ordained priest, even if they don't have faculties, even if they aren't in public ministry anymore, they can licitly and validly absolve somebody uh, of their sins in, in sacramental confession. In that particular case, they are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, as Hebrews says. This is fascinating. Okay, I've got I've got one I've got one more question, and it's it's a it's a technical hypothetical. And so, if it's too out there, just tell me, and I'll withdraw it. Is this about a but, tweet we were engaged in? <laughs> no, no. Uh, we should come back so, to that though, too. Okay, so there are so I'm going to talk about a layperson who doesn't necessarily know canon law, but maybe is not living the most wholesome life. There are certain actions which are, by their very nature, self-excommunicating. They're a very short list, and I'm going to butcher the Latin, but they're referred to in canon law as lati sententiae, and, and, they, and they, they, they create excommunication by their very commission. As soon as you've committed the act, you are automatically excommunicated. But a layperson might not know that, and so a layperson may do something. They may know that it's against the Catholic rules, and they may go to confession not knowing that they are auto-excommunicated. Does this ever create a weird situation for the confessor? Because in that particular moment, in the seal of confession, the two people who now know that this person is excommunicated are the confessor and the person confessing. And uh, but by virtue, and, oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, oh, but, and so and so, my question is then then what what is what is the obligation of the priest then in terms of public? interaction with that person like let's say the next weekend that person presents themselves for communion and um, this is sort of the, the question so i i yeah so um that's that's like nine questions in one though you may I'm not so realize sorry. it yeah don't apologize <laughs> it's just uh I, I feel like i've sold our listeners a bill of goods this is definitely not going to be a half hour long it's going to be a bit longer than that <laughs> okay, but i hope this is interesting that. no that's that's fine with me um so a, a word about excommunication uh this notion that you're describing uh, is exactly right, that what's confused sometimes is what's known as the public acknowledge, acknowledgement of excommunication versus being excommunicated. So what you said is exactly right. Nobody, excommunication is not a punishment. It's not something that a bishop decides because he doesn't like somebody or because somebody voted a particular way or something like this. 
Excommunication means to be out of communion with the church, out of communion with the body of Christ, out of communion with the church. And so there are certain acts by the very nature of the act itself that is that puts somebody outside of communion. You are excommunicated. Whether or not, you know, the formal acknowledgement of that is only done by the local bishop. So a local bishop can acknowledge that somebody has committed a sin, committed a grave act that by its very nature put them outside of communion with the church. So that's important to realize. That's true with every one of those acts. So when a bishop says so-and-so is excommunicated, he's not excommunicating them. They've excommunicated themselves. Excommunication just means outside of communion, excommunion, right? Um, I'm, I think I've lost tri- trace of the conversation so or the question. I, the, 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 and, and I was asking particularly with regard to the seal of confession. So in that particular moment. So if they're absolved from the sin, then they're no longer outside of communion. Okay. So, you know, if, if you're going to sacramental confession, if you're going to the sacrament of penance and you confess to that sin, it gets complicated. And we've talked, we talked about this for our listeners on the episode where we talk about the sacrament of penance more specifically about certain sins are reserved to the local ordinary for absolution. And that's tied to this point that David's bringing up about, you know, the, the sin by its grave nature, it, Puts one out of communion with the church. Um, there are exception, there are exceptions to to the local ordinary's absolution, like a mendicant, for instance, a member of the mendicant order, like the Franciscans. We have a canonical ability to do that, and we talk about that more in the episode. And itself, we do, so yeah. So we refer preview. listeners to that, yeah, exactly. Um, so in this case, if if they receive absolution, if they confess, if they if they're contrite, if they accept their penance and they're absolved, then they're in communion with the church. You're back in communion. Okay. Um, well, and and I think I think where I was getting tripped up was I hadn't remembered exactly what you just reminded me of because I I had realized that that latai sententiae. My understanding was that under canon law, it required the bishop to do the absolution. But I recognize that you said that there are times when the bishop has given the the local exactly. the local priest the power to do that. To do that. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So this is very helpful. Yeah. And by definition, every act of you know every instance of excommunication is is that you know by virtue of the act itself, which is the Latin phrase that you're referring to. Um, we won't trip up our listeners with it. Um, but the uh, yeah, and so a bishop when a bishop declares that the bishop is merely declaring that which is already the case. He's not making it. It's not a. So there are, however, punishments that a bishop can level, um, and this is called interdict or interdiction, um, and that's different from excommunication. Interdiction may be forbidding people from access to the sacraments, and that's a kind of punishment. And so you'll see oftentimes if you read canon law, um, you know particularly around the sacraments, who has access to the Eucharist, for instance, it might say things like those who are not excommunicated or or under interdict. Um, so people sometimes confuse those. They may never have heard of interdiction before or, or an interdict, but um, that's that's uh, that's a canonical penalty. It's a, that's the technical term for it. We don't use the term punishment. That <laughs> sounds like something you know, a timeout chair or something like that. But but interdict and in, one who is under interdict is in effect one who is who's received a juridical penalty, uh, canonical penalty. Um, if I can, so um, there are a couple other things too. Oh, you were saying so based on 
the presumption earlier in your question, the second part of the question was, you know, at mass, if somebody comes up for communion and the priest knows something that he, and I'm going to broaden this now from your original example, if the priest knows something about this person from the celebration of, of confession, well, on the one hand, if they received absolution, then they're in, they're in full communion. I mean, that's, then they have access to the sacraments. That's the end of that. Um, so that's, that's problem solved. There are cases, perhaps, and it's very complicated, it should be extremely rare, where maybe absolution is withheld. Maybe it's in a case like one of these things reserved to the local ordinary in a diocese in which that was not given as a standard faculty. Um, but here's the thing. Here's the catch. The priest cannot change his behavior or draw attention to the person to suggest that he knows of something that was disclosed in the celebration of the sacrament. So if somebody comes up who's in grave sin and, and wants to receive communion, technically he has to give it. The greatest example of this, I think, in popular uh, kind of uh, ethos, we might say, the popular kind of realm, is a brilliant movie. I think it was an Irish movie called Calvary some years ago about a priest um, who the, 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 the movie opens. It's a, it's a very powerful, it's a very beautiful movie that illustrates this whole point. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it yet, but it's all, I, I won't spoil the, the, the premise because it's in the opening scene where in the confessional in the church, a gentleman comes in and says that he's going to kill the priest in, in a week and confesses this and in addition to some other things. And, and I won't say more about this, but um, there's a, there are a number of really powerful scenes where this priest knows that this penitent has threatened his life and in in there he's grappling with what to do about that it's a grappling with it's a whole movie about what does one do with the seal of confession does he alter his life in some way does he take a vacation all of a sudden to leave town does he notify the police does he wear a bulletproof vest does he what does he do at one point he's talking to his bishop doesn't disclose who the person is but the bishop asks do you know who this is and the priest says i do and that's it. Doesn't disclose who it is. Doesn't say anything more. Just explains the situation. Um, and it's a powerful movie. Have you seen it, David? Have you seen it? I haven't seen it, but now I want to because this is exactly right up my it alley. It is so to... up your alley. This is definitely yeah. not for the kids. Um, but I think you and Kira, it's it's it, it will make you cry. It's a very powerful movie. Um, it's very heart wrenching. It's so well acted. It's so good. It's it's I I can't recommend it highly enough. But I do want to you know, uh, you know, trigger warning for for our listeners. There there is um it, in uh, you know references to the child sexual abuse crisis though. Um, the, the priest isn't involved in that in the same way. This isn't like um, doubt. It's, it's, not, it's That's not the primary focus. Um, and there is also violence, obviously, that's that's implied and tied to this. So it's it's adult subjects. It's not really for children. Um, but I would say for mature teenagers and, and for really any adults who are interested in this, um, it's, it's, it's a very, very good movie. So add it to your list. Calvary is what it's called. Definitely. And I will say this entire conversation has been fascinating. And I appreciate so much, Father Dan, you're letting me kind of throw questions at you and hypotheticals at you. And and I have learned a lot 
just from this conversation, and I hope that our listeners have too. We'll be back uh, every every couple of weeks doing a little bit more. Wait, of these before kinds of we things. go, we got to talk before about we... the Twitter hypothesis because that was really good. You gotta, we got to talk about this. Well, why, you got to remind me what the Twitter hypothesis is. Well, you raised this point on Twitter. Um, uh, this is, he didn't disclose this in, in confession, so I can tell this in public. <laughs> so on Twitter, uh, you you mentioned you know a really interesting uh, hypothetical about. Uh, let's say confession via Zoom and the technology oh, yeah. um, as an audio technician, as a, as an engineer and producer, you know, you you raise this question about uh, audio devices. Okay, and, so let, yeah, go ahead. I, and why don't you raise it? Yeah, and I will talk about why that's not the same thing. So, so the difficulty has been. Uh, people are saying, well, we can't do confession via cell phone. We can't do confession via via Skype or Zoom. And because we can't use electronic devices, that's what that one person on Twitter said. We can't use electronic devices for confession. And I, I started thinking as an audio professional, and I started because a lot of times in live events, I'm working with people who are hearing impaired, and so I've had to get to know the interaction of kind of audio uh, amplification devices for a, for a room full of people, how they interact with the very very small devices that fit in a person's ear or right behind an ear. And the difficulty that I had when I was thinking about this problem is that in both cases, whether you're talking about a microphone and an amplification system in a room, a microphone where you speak into a phone and it's amplified on somebody else's end through the earpiece, or you're talking about a little thing that that is a a hearing aid, in each case you've got a microphone that captures sound and you have an amplification system that then broadcasts the sound. And whether you're talking about the distance of the microphone being basically the, the distance of your ear, or the distance being the 20 feet that it takes to get from the microphone lead to the amplification system in the room, or maybe it's 500 feet or a mile or five miles or 20 miles of a cell phone. I was not understanding in each case in terms of the essence of what's happening, I'm capturing sound, I'm amplifying sound, it seemed to be the same. And so I was asking, is 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 the problem the fact that we have an electronic device? Does that put people who are using hearing devices in trouble because the absolution that they're hearing has been captured and broadcast again? And you said very clearly that's not the problem. No. So what is the difficulty here? So the issue isn't about the the assistance of technology or the assistance of other people. And now this is going to blow everybody's mind, particularly since we're talking about uh, the seal of confession, only priests can absolve from sins, and so on and so forth. Um, the issue isn't a technology. So whoever said that on Twitter was wrong. It's not the technology that's the issue. You could use Zoom if the person's in the same room as you. That's 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 fine. You can use Zoom if they're on the other side of a wall, like you have in a confessional with the screen, um, or you can use you know an audio thing. It's about the necessary physicality of the celebration of the sacraments, our corporeality, you have to actually be there with the person. You can't anoint somebody, you know, remotely. You know, th- we mentioned this when we talked about the the, the right of anointing, um, the, the sacrament of the anointing of the sick, about whether or not you could really even anoint somebody through gloves or through protective gear, because it's supposed to be a physical thing. Just like you can't receive communion, you can't consecrate, you know, hosts and wine remotely. It's a physical thing. You can't it, you know, imbibe the sacrament, the sacramental species of, of bread and wine, you know, the body and blood of Christ 
virtually, right? Um, so it's it's a really it's an issue of anti Gnosticism, anti Manichaeanism, um, more than it is about a Luddite sort of technological thing. The hearing aid thing, not a problem. Uh, the microphone thing, not a problem. Um, the you know the issue is the physicality and being in the same place. There are no sacraments that can be celebrated remotely. So that's really important. All the sacraments have to be celebrated in person. Um, the the other person thing is really interesting because more of a scandal, I think, to some people would be that there are provisions in the rite of penance in the in the sacrament of confession to have an interpreter or to have a third person who is there, um, and. It's interesting, Canon 983, uh, subsection 2 says, the interpreter, if there is one, and all others who in any way have knowledge of the sins from confession. So here's what that's referring to, is that, you know, David Dalt, last Saturday at 4 o'clock, is going to confession to me, and his wife, Kira, walks by, and here's what he says. She, too, now, is under the seal of confession. And so it says that anyone who has any knowledge for, of any way of the knowledge of sins from confession are also obliged to observe secrecy. So, you know, the use of technology or the use of the assistance of another person to help somebody confess or to, you know, you might think, well, I, we don't have to go down all the hypotheticals, but it's... But, but this, this raises a, a question for me that, that was a follow-on to the hearing aid question, and that is, how does confession work for the deaf? And you've just helped me to answer it. So let's say that it's a, it's a priest that doesn't know sign language and a person comes in who is deaf... So certainly the person could bring in a sign interpreter and they'd be under the seal of confession. But let's say that there's no sign interpreter available. Can a person write down their 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 sins and hand them to the priest and then the, can the priest write down the absolution or does it even well, the if the priest, priest says the, the absolution yeah the priest the priest doesn't have to write down the absolution. The issue there would really be the pastoral counseling and the penance. You know, communicating that that that's where the real communication comes in. Um, this is, you know, it's a great example. There are, you know, deaf or hearing impaired ministries in a lot of dioceses. There's a friar or two friars that I know of in my own uh, province who are fluent in, in American Sign Language and celebrate mass in sign language, who celebrate uh, penance in sign language. Um, it, you know, it's one of a variety of forms of, of languages and native languages. You know, I... You know, like you as theologians, we have some competence in a number of foreign languages, uh, and, and in our case, some dead languages, ancient languages too. That you know, I, I it would be interesting to have somebody come to confession and and, and start speaking in Latin to me. Um, I anyway, but um, but there are lots of languages in which um, the confessor does not need to know everything about what the person is saying. Um, Provided that it's understood that the confessor recognizes that the person is being contrite, that they make that act of contrition, and that you can somehow can, can communicate to them a penance that they understand and that they can do. Um, you can pray the prayer of absolution in, in your own native language or in a second or third language. That's perfectly fine. So in the case of sign language, um, it could be written out. Um, it could be... Uh, you know, through an interpreter in this case, and that's true of other contexts as well. Um, the technology is not the problem in and of itself, and uh, even the assistance of somebody is not a problem in and of itself. Should say that the breaking of the seal of confession um, is one of these things that that uh, that triggers excommunication by definition itself. You're outside of communion. Um, it's it's incredibly. It, it is the most serious offense 
uh, for for an ordained person. Um, and we really don't have time because we've really, you know, we're, we're beyond 15 minutes past when we told our listeners we would end. So our apologies or you're welcome, depending on if you liked it or not. Um, <clears throat> But just to say that um, it's incredibly, incredibly serious. So serious that um, that I would go to jail before, um, you know, even considering divulging that. And um, I'm fortunate right now. This was occasion, I believe, because David is is a keen watcher of of uh, American ju- jurisprudence and these sorts of things. There are a number of laws, particularly in California, that are seeking to make. Uh, the sacrament of confession analogous to psychotherapy or, uh, you know, lawyer confidentiality and these kinds of things. And what that will mean is nothing from the vantage point of the church. It it just means that the consequences for protecting the seal of confession for the the ministers of the sacrament uh, will become much, much more serious. And there are places in the world already in which um, there are very real consequences for that. So um, to, to just to highlight that point about the significance of this conversation, that um, you know, it's it's something that priests need to think about and to take seriously, and it's part of um, you know the unique responsibilities and obligations that we have. Well, Dan, thank you for taking some time on a weekend to record an extra episode, and we'll we're like I say, we'll be doing this. Uh, uh, in the coming weeks, a few more times, and who knows? As long as the uh, as long as the shelter in place is working, we may have more time to do this. So I hope we uh, don't. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I love doing this, but I just hope we're, yeah. we're not. You know, things get better soon. Um, and so, yeah, you know, just to echo David there and add to it to say that if you like this uh, format, you know, like us kind of having an extended conversation about a particular theme, you know, let us know uh, by social media and this sort of thing. Share it, um, and if you have ideas or topics you'd like us to talk about theologically or sacramentally, um, pastorally, you know, we're always open to ideas. Can't guarantee we'll get to them, but, uh, you know, shoot us some ideas via the social media. Yep. Thanks again. And Dan, always good to see you, even if it's virtually. Igualmente.